Over 2,500 years ago, Gautama Buddha, with his most deep and profound generosity of heart, offered the teachings and the practices of liberation, liberation from suffering, directly out of his own experience. And for centuries following this, these teachings and practices have continued to be offered out of the generous heart of thousands of other beings all over the world. It's said in the ancient Buddhist legend that many, many maha kalpas and world cycles ago, before our Buddha, Gautama Buddha, came to be, another Buddha, Dipankara Buddha, was to pay a visit to a small village, the village of Amaravati in India. And he was going to offer public talks, revealing his dharma. The villagers in this village were extremely excited. They were very honored that Dipankara Buddha was going to pay them a visit to show their great respect for this Buddha Dipankara. They decided to level, level out and cover over the road that was going to be the length that the Buddha would be walking on as he came into their village, cover the road with some fine cloth. In the forest just outside this village of Amaravati lived a young man who was blessed with all goodness, great physical beauty, intelligence, friendliness, kindness, great moral vigor. His name was the hermit Sumedha, who much later, at a much later time in future lives, in a future life, was to become our Buddha. Sumedha's parents were wealthy Brahmins, and they died just a few years before, leaving Sumedha with seven generations of accumulated property and great wealth. It's said that this young man, Sumedha, thought, my family, my family's amassed great wealth. Yet neither my parents nor any of my ancestors were able to keep any of it. Weren't able, weren't able to take any of it with them before leaving this world, upon leaving this world. So what's the point of amassing more? One day I'll also die. As there's a road that leads beyond suffering, beyond suffering in this world, should I remain idle, he asked himself. No, he thought, I'll leave this sheltered life. I'll become an ascetic. I'll find the way. So he announced his intention to the king, and he gave all of his money 
all of his wealth to the poor. And he entered into the forest life as a hermit. He ate wild fruit. He wore clothes made out of bark. He let his hair grow long and matted. And he practiced very energetically, whether standing, sitting, or lying down. In a short time, he gained quite a profound insight into the nature of things. And he bore this great wisdom gracefully, which was never to be dimmed. It's said that he sat for many, many days blissfully, absorbed in his newly found sense of freedom and understanding. On the day that Dipankara Buddha was to visit the village, Sumedha was roused out of his deep meditation by all of the excitement and the activity that was going on in the town. It's said that seated cross-legged, he rose up into the air and flew through the forest until he came to the road. What's all this excitement? Why are you working in the midday heat? Why is the road being leveled and covered with golden cloth? Venerable, Venerable Sumedha spoke to the workman. And the workman said back to Sumedha, Don't you know? The Buddha Dipankara, he's approaching our village. Well, Sumedha's heart just leapt with joy. A Buddha, he thought. Rare is it to even hear the word Buddha. Beyond all comprehending is it to meet a fully realized one. So he immediately came down from his airy perch, <laughs> and he offered to help the workmen with the road. He picked a particularly swampy patch of low ground to fill. As he worked, his heart was filled with light and filled with joy. And he kept repeating over and over again to himself, A Buddha! A Buddha! <laughs> but before he was able to finish his task, he heard exquisite music in the distance, and chanting, and he saw flowers being tossed into the air. The Buddha Dipankara was approaching. Sumedha saw multi-hued rays of light extending from the Buddha Dipankara, and a great soft golden light surrounding him. And then he thought, here's one who has attained all wisdom. Here's one free from all greed, all anger, all ego delusion. One in whom all goodness has been realized. I'll make an offering to Buddha Dipankara in honor of all that he is. So Sumedha spread his bark cloth cape over the soft wet ground and lay down on it. And he loosened his long matted hair and spread it over the mud and the soft earth. 
he made a passage of himself for the Buddha Dipankara to walk on over the mud. And then he thought, like the Buddha Dipankara, I want to help all beings. I'm determined. Despite all the difficulties, all the danger, I'll never, never turn back. I'm resolved to attain what the Buddha Dipankara has attained to benefit all beings. The next moment after he had these beautiful thoughts, the next moment the Buddha Dipankara arrived right at the spot where Sumedha was lying. And looking down at Sumedha, he knew this hermit has made a resolution to be a Buddha. He'll be successful. In many, many mahakalpas and world cycles from now, he'll become a fully realized one, an awakened one, a Buddha, and his name will be Gautama. And out loud, surrounded by thousands of people, monks, nuns, laywomen, laymen, children, the Buddha stated, in many mahakalpas and world cycles from now, this hermit lying here will fulfill his great vow. He'll be the Buddha named Gautama. And when he becomes a young man, he'll see the four signs, old age, sickness, death, and a monk. And he'll leave his ordinary life in search of the deepest truths. After great exertions and near death, he'll receive a life-saving meal of milk rice. And then with renewed strength and renewed energy, he'll go to the foot of a bow tree, sit himself down, and continuing his great effort with great diligence, he'll attain supreme Buddhahood. Well, Sumedha, lying there in the mud, became totally delirious with joy. <laughs> My deepest wish shall be attained. I shall be a Buddha. Sumedha put his palms together, honoring the Buddha Dipankara, who did the same in return as he continued on his way, accompanied by thousands of monks, nuns, and lay followers from all walks of life. The Bodhisattva Sumedha arose from his bed of generosity and filled with joy and strength, great strength of purpose, he rose back up into the air and returned to his forest retreat where he remained, working hard towards his goal. Generosity. Generosity as a practice. The practice of offering and receiving. A process which 
clearly helps to purify and transform the contraction of separateness engendered by self-centeredness. The practice of generosity offers us the possibility of the purification and the transformation of greed, of covetousness, the transformation of fear and attachment. Generosity, it's a perfectly natural aspect of our humanness and universally recognized as one of the basic human virtues. We offer, we receive, the seamless circle. Just as the Bodhisattva Sumedha so diligently and so deeply practiced and cultivated generosity, we also cultivate and manifest it in a thousand different ways no matter our culture, no matter our age, no matter who we are. I'm weeding and cultivating my garden early one morning, and my two-and-a-half-year-old son wanders over to my work area with a great bright smile on his face and thrusts a bunch of dandelions at me. I receive them with delight and a heartfelt gratitude. I happen to be in China during my 46th birthday. The friend that I was traveling with and I were staying in Shanghai in a two-room apartment with a Chinese family who were very good friends of my friend. The 20-year-old daughter of the family had been admiring over the few days that we would, that were there had been admiring my favorite bracelet. I'd learned that in China, as Sharon mentioned, the same as it is in Burma, the custom is to give gifts on your birthday. So, in the midst of some degree of attachment. <laughs> I decided to uh, give my favorite bracelet to the daughter for my birthday, though uh, feeling a bit like a one-handed giver. (laughs) When the time came to actually offer her the gift, it was with both hands and on heart open. And it truly was by that time uh, a real joy for me to give it to her. And very much through the process of getting to that point, a real practice of generosity for me. Last summer, forest fires raged in Los Alamos in Española, in that area of New Mexico. Hundreds of individuals and families were evacuated from their homes. Almost immediately, there was an enormous outpouring of generosity coming from miles around. Clothing, food, all of the ordinary daily life needs, offers of housing. So much offered freely that at some point we were told that it was time to stop giving. The needs of all of those suffering because of the fires had been met with great abundance. 
A friend of mine waited quite a number of years for all of the conditions to come together in her life to sit the three-month retreat here. And finally, the conditions do come together. But about one week before the retreat began, she calls me to tell me that she's given up her spot because a very dear friend who had cancer asked her if she might consider being her caretaker. A young cab driver in Thailand, he and I were having a, quite an inspiring conversation about Buddhism. And just as I was about to get out of his taxi, he takes a small bronze statue off the dashboard of his car and gives it to me, a small bronze statue of his beloved teacher. And I hesitate momentarily, really not sure how to receive this gift or if I could receive this gift. And then my heart just simply opens. And then it's easy to receive this, accept really, this purity of generosity. A three-year-old Native American child from the Iroquois tribe sits in the middle of a circle, surrounded by many blood relatives and extended family. There are delicious foods, beautiful clothing and blankets close to the child. After eating and drinking her fill and exploring the blankets and the clothing, a voice from outside the circle calls, I'm hungry. Another voice, I'm thirsty. Another voice, I'm cold. The child's let out of the circle to share food with the hungry, drink with the thirsty, blankets with the cold. A ceremony, a training of the heart towards compassionate generosity. I'm attempting to feed my seven-month-old granddaughter She picks up a piece of banana and delightedly stuffs it into my mouth. (laughs) At some point along the way of your life, your practice, you decided you wanted to sit the three-month retreat, and all the conditions came together just right. And you give yourself, and you received this great gift. Another yogi offers you milk for your tea instead of putting it back into the refrigerator. You're moving quite slowly on a particular day. You don't feel pushed. You don't feel hurried. No one's trying to speed up, speed you up. Just generosity behind you, all around you. You receive some care packages from home and share the contents with others here at the retreat. Someone comes and takes the dishes that I'm holding as I stand in the dishwashing line in the back of the dining room. 
at our Thursday evening sit in our small meditation center in Taos, New Mexico, we ask for volunteers for some construction and painting, finishing touches to our center. One of the carpenters in the Sangha volunteers and comes in on his day off. And he comes in on Sundays. A few weeks later, we ask for help for another task. And again, he brightly offers. And I look at him quite surprised, and he says, Oh, I'm happy to help. More merit. (laughs) Imagine yourself standing outside your house each morning, holding a bowl of food. A line of saffron-robed monks is moving slowly, gracefully, down the road each of them holding a round begging bowl. As they pass in front of you, you scoop out a portion of the food from your bowl and put it into each of the monks' bowls. Imagine yourself as a child, standing with your mother or your father or an older sister or older brother, and seeing this ritual, this offering each morning, taking in the power of the generous heart so clearly present in this daily practice of generosity, taking in the joy and the genuine happiness that's quite apparent in this purity of giving, the benefits of generosity easily learned each day. This is from the Buddha, one of his more poetic teachings. Just as a hundred-peaked, lightning-garlanded, thundering cloud raining on the fertile earth fills the plateaus and gullies, even so a person of conviction and learning, wise, having stored up provisions, gives to those in need, delighting in giving. This is his or her thunder, like a raining clouds, that shower of merit, abundant, abundant, rains back on the one who gives. The Buddha taught, if you knew what I knew about generosity, You wouldn't let one meal go by without sharing it. The Buddha and his nuns and his monks lived a simple life, all in a very similar way. Each day they made alms rounds for their sustenance. The Buddha taught a way of life. He said, Thus you must train yourselves. We will be thankful. We will be grateful. Not even the least thing that is done for us shall be forgotten. Giving and receiving the practice of generosity. Most of us in the Western world don't have this kind of daily experience, this reminder. We have neither the monastic training 
of the begging bowl, which is in part a process of an ongoing cultivation and deepening of gratitude and appreciation via the kindness shown to us. Nor do we engage in offering food each day to those who depend on it for their sustenance, cultivating the open, connected, joyous heart of generosity. Rather, our culture encourages us to yearn for, to acquire, to accumulate, and then to fixate and cling to our accumulations, material accumulations and the accumulations of opinions, views, that support this whole materialistic culture. We're conditioned by this process then to identify ourselves outwardly and inwardly through all of our accumulations, material and otherwise, to think and feel that this is who we are. In the light of all this, I think it takes a certain kind of courage to enter into a spiritual path that encourages us towards seeing, towards knowing the truth of ourselves, of all things, underneath and beyond all of this conditioning that breeds so much confusion, so much anguish. This is a poem by Naomi Shihab Nye. She wrote it in 1978 when she was in Colombia. It's called Kindness. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose everything. Feel the future dissolve in a moment, like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desolate desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride, thinking the bus will never stop. The passengers eating mice and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head out of the crowd of the world to say, it is I you've been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere, like a shadow or a friend.
We don't really have anything inculcated in our culture that teaches us and deepens us into living the truth of interconnectedness and the essential emptiness of all accumulations. I think that as a culture, there's a deep, a quite a profound loss in this lack. The practice, the development of the heart of generosity is the seed, is the foundation of spiritual development. Generosity is the ground of compassion. It's a requisite towards the realization of liberation. From this perspective, the greatest gift, then, is the act of giving. Traditionally, in the teachings of the Buddha, three kinds of giving are spoken of. There is what could be called beggarly giving. That's when we give with only one hand, so to say, still holding on to what we have to give. It's still mine. In this kind of giving, we give maybe the least of what we have. And afterward, we might even wonder whether we should have given it all. The second kind of giving could be called friendly giving. We give open-handedly. We give with two hands. We take what we have and we share it because it seems, because it feels quite appropriate. It's a clear kind of giving. And then there's what's called kingly or queenly giving. And this is when we give the best of what we have, even if nothing remains for ourselves. We give the best of what we have instinctively, graciously. We think of ourselves or we know ourselves to be only temporary caregivers of whatever's been provided. We think of ourselves or know ourselves as owning nothing. So in this, there's no giving, really. There's just this spaciousness that allows objects to remain in the natural flow of life, the heart of generosity the heart of compassionate generosity. There's a wonderful metaphor for this that I like a lot. The moon shining in the sky while its image is reflected in a hundred bowls of water or in every single drop of water. The moon doesn't demand if you open to me I'll do you a favor and shine on you. The moon just simply shines. The point is not to want to benefit anyone or to make them happy. There's no audience involved. No me, no you, or no them. It's a matter of an open gift, complete generosity, without the relative notions of giving and receiving. This is from uh, Desmond Tutu from South Africa. 
Africans believe in something that is difficult to render in English. We call it Ubuntu Boto. It means the essence of being human. You know when it's there and when it's absent. It speaks about humanness, gentleness, hospitality, putting yourself out on the behalf of others, being vulnerable. It embraces compassion and toughness. It recognizes that my humanity is bound up in yours, for we can only be human together. And needless to say, we don't always live in the purity and completeness of generosity described in the moon metaphor. That's partly why we're here, why we're practicing. One of the reasons that we keep inclining the heart, the mind, towards generosity, towards compassionate generosity. Really one of the reasons that we practice. I think one of the most important things to remember in our practice with both the vipassana practice and the cultivation of generosity, which is really the ground for metta and karuna and mudita, is to remember to be very honest with ourselves, truly honoring and respecting our capacity of heart, our capacity of mind at any given point along the way and not pretending anything to ourselves or to others by imitating or acting out of some idealized image that we have of a generous, compassionate, loving person. It's really important to know and to honor and to respect our limits whatever they are along the way, and come from a very genuine place of heart. About 12 years ago or so, my mother um, hurt her leg. She fell and cut her leg very badly right down to the bone. And she didn't take herself to the doctor and didn't really do very much about it. And it became severely infected. She came to New Mexico to visit my brother, and I happened to be at my brother's home at that time. And we took her to the doctor. And the doctor said that if the wound wasn't cleaned out thoroughly, down to the bone, every morning, or at least once a day, that she would have to go into the hospital. And so we very quickly decided we didn't want her to go into the hospital, And um, we all waited a few minutes to see who was going to do the the work. And uh, I said I would. A moment of generosity, (laughs) a moment of pretty clear, compassionate generosity. And then I had to do the work each morning. It was quite a challenge. It was very painful for my mother to um, have this done. And I, uh, my capacity went in and out to be able to really be there with an open heart. 
There were some mornings when I felt angry at her for falling, angry at her for not taking care of herself. Now I had to do it. And she's the mother, and I'm the child. And you know that story. <laughs> I felt quite averse some mornings at the grossness of the wound. And she would sit there. Each time I did what needed to be done, she would sit there, and she would close her eyes, and my sister-in-law would sit next to her and hold her hand very tightly. And she wouldn't say anything, much at all, except thank you to me. She was so... There was so much gratitude coming from her for what I was doing that it turned around and uh, fed me, we could say. Over those days, or actually weeks, of doing this, I felt so grateful for the practice because I never really got very caught for very long. I got to see it all coming and going. It was really a quite a deep practice of compassionate generosity for me. Sometimes we might think that we're acting with unconditional love and compassionate generosity when, in fact, we're acting out of maybe a fear of loss or fear of reprisal or fear of disapproval. Or we might give from the place of trying to avoid dealing directly with someone or dealing directly with a difficult situation. Giving in this way actually perpetuates fear, perpetuates delusion. We remain in and strengthen the closed heart of self-centeredness and disconnection, the suffering in ourself and the other. And we may be creating what in modern language is called codependency, rather than cultivating the truth of a healthy and vital connection and the natural unfolding of the wisdom of interconnectedness. We may have a strong inner sense of need. We may not feel whole. We may not feel ontologically okay, meaning not intuitively feeling a simple okayness about being here, a simple okayness about being alive in this life, just because here we are, alive in this life. And without this, we might have a kind of undifferentiated feeling of disconnection, a feeling of an inner lack of a sense of abundance. If we don't yet feel the strength within us of wholeness and abundance, this really needs to be respected. Otherwise, giving and caring is often done with a subtle or maybe not so subtle sense of getting something in return. When our heart hasn't yet healed from the conditioned feelings of lack, of not enoughness, 
there may be a misunderstanding in in relation to the truth of compassionate generosity. We may give ourselves away or lose ourselves, so to say, in an unhealthy way, in the seeming generous support, which is actually the unskillful support of others. When this happens, we then actually feel less whole. We feel more depleted. And we also might be ignoring or not just or not even aware of the real needs of others, the real needs of ourselves. In relation to this on a larger scale, Thomas Merton wrote, to allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to surrender to too many demands, to commit oneself to many projects, to want to help everyone in everything, is to succumb to violence. And as a counterbalance to this, some words from Ralph Waldo Emerson, he calls it on success. To laugh often and much, to win the respect of intelligent people and the affection of children, to earn the appreciation of honest critics and endure the betrayal of false friends, to appreciate beauty, to leave the world a bit better, whether by a healthy child, a garden patch, or a redeemed social condition, to know even one life has breathed easier because you have lived. This is to be successful. So it's really quite important to understand, respect, and honor in ourselves and in others the wisdom of a deep and true compassionate generosity. Understand that it grows and matures gradually. And also to know and to remember that our limits keep changing. Our limits keep moving out, expanding throughout our practice. I'd like to share with you a small piece of a diary written by a young uh, Dutch woman named Eddie Hillesum. In 1996, I taught uh, for two months in Poland, Vipassana and Metta. And that year, uh, during this time, at Thanksgiving time, Tetsugan Roshi, Bernie Glassman Roshi, organized the first, um, what he called, bearing witness retreat at Auschwitz. And I went to that. There were 140 people from all over the world at this Thanksgiving Bearing Witness retreat. One of the things we did each evening was someone would read out loud a piece of a chapter, a small, or a small piece of uh, this young woman, Eddie Hillisom's diary. So I'd like to just uh, preface it and then read just a little bit of it. She was 27 years old, as I mentioned, and she was a Dutch Jewish woman who um, 
before the war, at the beginning of the war, lived in a large house with a group of people in Amsterdam. And she was in quite bad health when she went to the Westerbrook concentration camp and then uh, was sent to Auschwitz, where she lived only briefly for a short time. These years of great suffering throughout Europe were for Eddie a time of enormous personal growth and, paradoxically enough, a time of personal liberation. In the midst of this scenario of extermination that was being played out all over Europe, Eddie wrote the counter-scenario, we could say. And her diaries are a really, truly amazing account of our possibility as human beings in the midst of immense, extreme difficulty. This is just a short piece from her diary. I think that I'll do it anyway. I'll turn inward for half an hour each morning before work and listen to my inner voice. Lose myself. You could call it meditation. I'm still a bit wary of that word, but anyway, why not? A quiet half hour within yourself. But it's not so simple, that sort of quiet hour. It has to be learnt. A lot of unimportant inner litter and bits and pieces have to be swept out first. Even a small head can be piled high inside with irrelevant distractions. So let this be the aim of meditation, to turn one's innermost being into a vast empty plain with none of that treacherous undergrowth to impede the view so that something of God can enter you and something of love too. Not the kind of love deluxe that you revel in deliciously for half an hour, taking pride in how sublime you feel, but the love you can apply to small, everyday things. At another point, Eddie wrote, Mysticism must rest on crystal clear honesty and can only come after things have been stripped down to their naked reality. This young woman, Eddie, with her clear vision. She instinctively knew that she wouldn't return from the camps, and she'd asked one of her friends there to keep her diaries. She somehow knew she wanted to leave a trace behind to offer as a gift generosity, to share the solutions that she'd found for her life. And this is from the very last entry of her diary. Ever since last night, I've been lying here trying to assimilate just a little of the terrible suffering that has to be endured all over the world, to accommodate just a little of the great sorrow the coming of winter has in store. It could not be done. Today will be a hard day. I shall lie quietly and try to anticipate something of all the days that are to come. When I suffer for the vulnerable, is it not for my own vulnerability that I really suffer? And her last line in the diary says, we should be willing to act as a balm for all wounds. Survivors from the camp 
have confirmed that Eddie was an incredibly generous, luminous personality right to the very last. It's our inalienable right to feel whole, to feel connected, to feel ontologically okay being here, being alive on the planet, (coughs) simply just because we are here. We are alive on this planet, just like a tree or a deer or a butterfly or grass. I think that this is one of the reasons that we're drawn to practice. It's a perfectly natural inclination to know the wholeness that's inherent in the not-self of interconnectedness. The Tibetans have uh, a wonderful practice, very basic practice, for miserly, very stingy people, people who have trouble giving even to themselves. The practice is to take something very ordinary, something that one might think of as being, white one might think of as not being particularly valuable, maybe, maybe a potato or a turnip, and holding it in one hand, pass it to the other hand. (laughs) And back and forth and back and forth until it gets easy. (laughs) If one's motivated, if one's inclined to continue the practice of generosity, one moves on to seemingly more valuable objects, either metaphorically or literally. And the giving symbolically develops into letting go of or relinquishing everything, all of the accumulations, the outer material accumulations, the inner accumulations of habits, preferences, ideas, beliefs, etc. And it's even spoken of relinquishing the secret accumulations, whatever those might be. The practice is done in its final stage, ideally with a mound of precious jewels that are symbolically offered over and over and over and over again to the Buddha, to the Dharma, to the Sangha, to all beings everywhere. At one point I did this practice, but instead of precious jewels, I used rice, which seemed actually quite appropriate. And this is really what we're doing here. What we're really, this is really truly what we're doing here in our practice without the paraphernalia. As we we relinquish, as we let go of the forces that bind us, as we practice non-clinging, as we begin to stop sticking to and identifying with the habit energies of greed, anger, fear, jealousy, we begin to see through them. 
we more and more often come to see and to know these energies, to experience these energies as not solid, nothing, no substantiality, not me, not mine, but as ephemeral thoughts flitting through the mind, as changing sensations coming and going, and often very quickly. As we begin to see clearly through these forces that bind us, they're no longer able to hold water, so to say. Our clear seeing makes holes in the bucket, and transformation begins to happen. The beautiful qualities, the energies of loving-kindness, compassion, empathetic joy, generosity, then have the ground and the space to grow and to flourish. Our limits that seem so set begin to open out. And we begin to experience a spaciousness of heart and mind that's grounded in a sense of calm, confidence, and clarity. A sense of connection, interconnection, or as Thich Nhat Hanh says it, interbeing. Being with, interbeing to life. Is be- we begin to experience it in quite tangible ways. As we practice and manifest generosity, we begin to see and feel ourselves changing and growing. The development and deepening of the quality of generosity counteracts the energies that limit us, that bind us, that constrict us. The development of generosity is a very powerful antidote to craving and clinging. In the largest sense, generosity isn't giving away anything. It's really about the inner quality of non-clinging, the inner quality of letting go, of relinquishing. The practice of generosity often very powerfully opens us to these liberating energies. So in this sense, our practice is really a seamless circle that just keeps expanding outward with no fixed line delineating a bounded edge. We learn the truth of giving and receiving, the natural law of giving and receiving, and the balance in this. It's important that we begin to see ourselves in this balance and not give out of some imagined idea of perfection. We must start just right where we are, within and whatever our capacity is at any given point in life. If we start here and we keep practicing, it's inevitable that the limits will move out. And amazingly, we begin to find out that there's really nothing to hold on to, no matter how hard we try. My son told me a joke uh, over the telephone one day about an extremely wealthy man who had died. And at his funeral, all the people there were very kind of interested and maybe in a kind of gossipy way, talking about his enormous great riches 
And someone asked what, how much he had left. And another person answered, why everything, of course. Learning to give, learning to receive, letting go of control, and receiving what is given. Receiving each moment of our life just as it is, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, with the trust that it's just right, just enough for our spiritual growth to unfold from. We can give ourselves the gift of truly learning to be present in the, in the present moment with a clear, mindful awareness. Receiving the present moment with gratitude, appreciation, humility. We can learn to apply the wise attention of mindful awareness in the midst of any exchange, any relationship, any emotional state, any sensation, to the smell of rain, to the touch of wind on our skin, to the task that we might be engaged in, to the experience of a breath from its birth all the way through to its death. Like the Bodhisattva Sumedha, who with great dedication and open-heartedness practiced and learned, we too can learn to receive life fully. To be kind, grateful, generous, knowing that this very life, this very life is the path, our path to freedom, our path to contentment, to the deepest ease of well-being and joy. We too can learn that this very life is our path to liberation, and that our liberation is intimately and profoundly connected to the liberation of all beings. Someone once asked Gandhi, a bodhisattva of our time, why do you give so much? Why do you serve all these people? And Gandhi answered, I don't give to anyone. I do it all for myself. In truth, the aim, the fruit of generosity, the fruits of generosity are twofold. We give to help to free others, and we give to help to free ourselves. This is really the fullness, the seamless circle of generosity. Through our practice, the energy of it grows and flows within us like the great rivers of the world, flowing naturally. We begin to know it deeply and live it quite naturally as who we are. I wanted to close with a a quote from... uh, an early American Buddhist, Jack Kerouac. (laughs) Quite an amazing quote, actually. 
This is from the scripture of the golden eternity. And the language is quite flowery. If you've never read him, certain times he was quite flowery. Discard such definite imaginations of phenomena as your own self, thou human being. Thou art a numberless mass of sun motes, each mote a shrine, the same as to your shyness of other selves, selfness as divided into infinite numbers of beings, or selfness as identified as one self existing eternally. Be obliging and noble. Be generous with your time and help and possessions, and be kind because the emptiness of this little piece of flesh you carry around and call your soul, your entity, is the same emptiness in every direction of space, immeasurably empty, the same one, one and holy emptiness everywhere. Why be selfie and unfree, man-god, man-woman, in your dream? Wake up, thou art selfless and free. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.